I'm going to attempt to give you an overview of Revelation this morning. We've spent 10 months going through the book of Revelation, and uh, my, my hope today is that I can sort of give you a comprehensive view of the whole book and of the future plan of God. Now, I'm giving you some charts there, and those are pretty detailed charts. In fact, they're so detailed that they may overwhelm you. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to explain those charts. I simply give them to you. There's one on each side. Uh, for those of you who want to uh, spend a leisurely afternoon uh, trying to understand those charts, they really, I think as you understand the symbols, the charts will start to make sense to you. If they don't make any sense, just stick them in your Bible and uh, leave them there, and someday uh, they'll maybe help answer a question for you. Uh, as we go through this review today, if some questions come to your mind, write them down, submit them to me. Next week we will spend the entire time seeking to answer those questions that may have arisen during our study of Revelation. So something may come up today as we go through this. If it does, you write it down and give it to me and, and we'll try to answer that next week. Let me start by reminding you of a few basic things relative to the nature of this book. Number one, it's prophetic. A lot of people have, have tried to make the book of Revelation a historical account and tried to plug it in somewhere in the past in history. It's a prophetic book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 19 calls it this book of prophecy. It is prophecy. It's telling us what is going to happen in the future, future from today. Secondly, it's understandable. Don't listen to people who say, you can't understand Revelation. It gets a lot of bad press, but it is understandable. Revelation 22, verse 10 says it is an open book. It's not sealed up. It's for our day. It's to be understood by us today. In fact, the word revelation, which is the Greek word apocalypse, means unveiled. And it is the book of unveiling. It, un it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in all His glory now and in all His glory in the future when He returns. It's a book that we need to understand, and so it's understandable. Don't be intimidated by it. Thirdly, it's symbolic. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 has an important word in it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. Now the word communicated or signified is a Greek word that means to show by signs. And so we need to understand the nature of this book. It's a book in which God has communicated to us, and he has communicated to us largely through signs, symbolically. And so it's very important that we understand the signs that are in this book. And if you don't understand the symbols, you'll get lost in the book of Revelation. There are many symbols there, and we need to be careful that we understand what those symbols mean. In fact, the majority of the symbols in the book of Revelation are defined for us. We're told in Revelation what the symbols mean. Those that are not 
defined in Revelation are oftentimes symbols from the Old Testament. We have to go back there to find out what those symbols mean. Or they may be symbols that came from the culture of John's day. But once we understand the symbols in the book of Revelation, we start to really comprehend the simplicity of the message of the prophecy in this book. And then fourthly, the book of Revelation is applicable. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 says it is written to Christ's bond servants. It's written to his servants, those who serve him. And like all of the revelation of the word of God, the understanding of the word of God is tied to our willingness to obey. And if you really want to understand the scriptures, you can't come to the scriptures with just sort of a semi-curiosity and understand the word of God. You must come to the word of God with a willingness to do what God tells you to do. And when we come as his bond servants, we can understand the truth of this book. If we're not willing to serve him, then we're probably not going to understand the message that he has for us. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. We are to read it, we're to hear it, and we're to heed it. That is, we're to obey it. Don't fall prey to Athenianism. In Acts chapter 17, it tells us about the people in Athens. And it says about them that they spent their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And we can fall into that trap where we just like to talk about some little new element of prophecy and it never has any impact on our lives. Prophecy is not given to satisfy our curiosity. It is preaching intended to change lives. And we need to understand it that way. Now, for the outline of the book of Revelation, we find it in chapter 1 and verse 19. John is told by the Lord Jesus to write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. That's the outline of the book of Revelation right there. Write the things that you have seen, past tense. Write the things that are, present tense. And write the things which shall take place after these things, future tense. Three parts to the book of Revelation. Part one, the things which you have seen is chapter one. The, the uh, vision of Christ that John saw. The things which are is chapters two and three where John sees the, le the seven letters to the seven churches. And the things which shall be after this is chapter 4 to 22, future things. And if you want to have a little handle to hang on to that, uh, the things which you have seen, chapter 1, is Christ among the seven candlesticks. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, is the seven letters to the seven churches. And chapters 4 to 22, the things future are largely contained in Christ opening that seven-sealed book. And so by those sevens, it's Christ among the seven candlesticks, chapter 1, the things that are past. The things that are present for John are the seven churches. And then the things in the future are that seven-sealed scroll. Uh, in chapter 1, we see a vision of Christ like we see nowhere else in Scripture except in Revelation chapter 19. And it's a picture of the glorified Christ. And if you really want to understand the Lord Jesus, you can't just spend your time in the Gospels. You must see him not just in his humility in the Gospels, you must see him in his glorification in the book of Revelation. And you must balance your understanding of who he is by this. And so it's an important vision that John sees in Revelation chapter 1 of the Lord Jesus. 
chapters 2 and 3, we see the seven letters to the seven churches. And many uh, students of this book believe that that's a chronological view of the whole church age. And I told you when we went through that that I don't hold that view. I believe that what we have here is a cross-section of the church in the day of John, and it's a cross-section of the church at every period of time in the existence of the church. Seven churches. We saw the church that left its first love, the suffering church, the church that married the world, the church that tolerated sin, the dead church, the church with the open door, and the lukewarm church. And those are seven types of churches made up of seven types of people which you will find at every point in the history of the church. You could take a cross-section of the church today and you would find these same types of churches and these same types of professing Christians in some cases. And then in chapters 4 to 22, we see the unfolding of that seven-sealed book. And we said that, that that scroll represents the title deed to the earth. In chapters 4 and 5, we find that Christ is worthy to open the scroll. And then throughout the remaining chapters, we find the opening of that scroll uh, really forms the chronology for the rest of the book because he opens the seven seals and the judgments come to purge the earth and then when the, the book is completely opened, he comes and lays claim to this earth and sets up his kingdom here. It's the title deed to the earth. And out of that title deed comes the judgments which purge and he comes and claims this earth for himself and sets up his kingdom here. Now, there are seven seals to the book and when we get to the seventh seal, we find that out of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets. And then when we get to the seventh trumpet, we think we're at the end and out of the seventh trumpet comes seven bowl judgments. And I suggested to you that uh, this represents or maybe could be best understood by the analogy of a telescope. That's my artwork, I didn't pay for this. Uh, but the idea is that we have the seven seals and it's not like these are separate judgments, but out of that seventh seal unfolds the seven trumpets and out of the seventh trumpet unfolds these seven bowls and so they're all really contained in the seven seals. It's all coming out of this, this book. And so the idea in there, in there is the unrolling of the scroll, the title deed to the earth. Uh, Bible students differ on where these fall chronologically. Uh, it's my opinion today that this would be the midpoint of the tribulation. So the, se the, the uh, seals and the trumpet judgments would fall in the first half of the tribulation, and then the last half of the tribulation we would have the seven bowl judgments. The prophetic section of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 to 22, covers three major divisions. And those divisions are chapters 4 to 19, describes the tribulation. Chapter 20 describes the millennium. And chapters 21 and 22 describe for us the eternal state. Now, I gave you uh, those complicated charts. What I'm going to use this morning is uh, one that I've drawn myself. 
which is not so complicated. And I want to just give you sort of a timeline here so that you know maybe a little bit about the chronology of what's going to happen. The next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. We're presently in the church age. It began at the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And the church age will end when the church is taken up out of this world. And there's nothing that needs to happen before that event. It's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Christ comes and and the dead in Christ shall rise first and we shall be caught up to meet him in the air. Be caught up into the air to meet the Lord. We will go up into the air and meet the Lord and then we will have the judgment seat of Christ which will occur in, in heaven at the same time the tribulation is occurring on earth. And so there's going to be a sense of purging happening everywhere. God is going to be purging the earth, uh, dealing with Israel really, during the tribulation period at the same time in heaven will be the judgment seat of Christ when rewards will be handed out, when we will give an account for the deeds that we've done during this lifetime. And then at the end of the tribulation period will come the second coming when Christ will come back with his saints. And so you really have the second coming in in two stages, if you like. The Lord Jesus comes for his church and at the beginning of the tribulation and at the end of the tribulation he comes back with his church. Um, At the end of the tribulation will be what most people are familiar with, the Battle of Armageddon that we hear people talk about. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 describes Christ's second coming with us, the church, and he comes and he destroys the armies that are on the earth. He puts an end to that battle of Armageddon. At the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes to the earth, he will have what's described in Matthew chapter 25, which is the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goat nations at the end of chapter 25. And he will separate those nations, and the goat nations will be, will be uh, put away and cast away. And the, the sheep nations will go into the millennium, and he'll set up his kingdom, which is a thousand-year rule on the earth. And there will be people there who come out of the millennium or out of the tribulation who will be there in their earthly bodies. We will be there in glorified bodies during that millennium. It will last a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, uh, during that thousand years, I should say, Satan will be bound in the bottom of the pit. At the end of that thousand years, he'll be released. For a brief time, he will gather together his final revolt, his final rebellion. He will gather men together. They will come against Jerusalem to come against Christ. At that time, God will destroy that with fire, that army, and then he will continue to burn up the earth. And that's my picture of fire. At the time that the the earth is destroyed, in fact, it says the heavens and the earth are destroyed, the next situation we see at the end of chapter 19 is the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment is only going to be for unbelievers. Believers won't be there. It says the dead, small, and great will stand before that throne. And so that will be the final resurrection. And men will stand before the great white throne and books will be opened. The main book will be the book of life or the book of the Lamb. 
And those whose names are not written there will be cast into the lake of fire. And men will be judged according to their deeds as well at the great white throne. And everybody out of that situation will be cast into an eternal lake The next thing we see in chapters 21 and 22 is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and an eternal kingdom that God has set up. And so that gives you just sort of a little bit of a a brief understanding at least of what, what is coming in the future. Now, I don't want to get too detailed in in bogging you down in things, but I just want you to understand the basic elements that are going to happen. You get this sort of structural idea in your mind, and then I think you'll be able to plug some things in, and you may even be able to understand the charts I think someday. Okay. Since the greatest portion of the book of Revelation deals with the tribulation, I thought it might be good this morning to sort of walk you through the tribulation and explain to you what is going to happen. Uh, And and, uh, hopefully that will be a help to you. Now the tribulation is actually divided into two parts. It's seven years in length, but it's divided up three and a half years and then three and a half more years. And the first part of the tribulation is really referred to as the tribulation. The last half is referred to as the great tribulation. And so when you read that phrase, the great tribulation, it's talking about the last half of that seven-year period. Uh, Now, during the first half of the tribulation period, several things are going to occur. Uh, On the government scene, we're going to see a revival of the Roman Empire. It will, it will be a ten-king confederacy, a united Europe with a ten-king confederacy. It's illustrated by the ten horns that are on the beast in Revelation. It's illustrated by the ten toes on the statue in Daniel chapter 2. A ten-king confederacy is going to arise in Europe, and then out of that confederacy will arise the Antichrist. And so he's going to come out of... Uh, the area around the Mediterranean Sea where the Roman Empire was, what today is really uh, Europe. And uh, he will arise. Daniel chapter 7 tells us he will really put aside three of those kings and rise amidst that kingdom, that confederacy that is there. When he first comes on the scene, he's going to act largely as a diplomatic leader in the early stages of the tribulation. He's going to be a peacemaker. In fact, His first act of diplomacy will be to bring peace to Israel. His first act that he's going to do is he's going to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict by giving Israel back her land and uh, reestablishing the temple and temple worship and all of those things. What he's really going to do is that he's going to uh, bring about Satan's imitation of God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to come and he's going to say, Israel, I'm going to make a peace covenant with you. I'm going to give you back your land. He's coming as the Antichrist, and he's really giving Israel all their land. He's giving them peace, and there'll be peace in Israel, and they'll be saying, everything is wonderful. Isn't he wonderful? And uh, they will be living in unwalled cities, as it says in Ezekiel chapter 38. That will be the new world order that we hear Uh, President Bush talking about today. 
and it's not too hard to imagine that, is it? That someone could come in and resolve that situation that's so, so volatile in the Middle East and uh, be a peacemaker in Israel. The stage is set. In the, in the religious realm, we're going to see a one-world religion that will flourish under the support of the Antichrist. And with the absence of the true believers, the true church will be taken out of the way. With the absence of the true believers, the ecumenical church is going to finally and fully achieve its goals. Um, in fact, with the support of the Antichrist, they're going to rise and take over a world scene. It's going to incorporate all world religions into one religion. And uh, the true nature of that religion is seen by the symbol that's used to depict it in the book of Revelation, and that is the harlot, which tells us that in reality they are unfaithful to God. At the same time, what's interesting is that at the same time this false religion is taking place, there's going to be true faith in the earth. The church is going to be taken out, but this tribulation period is what we usually call this, but it's also referred to as Daniel's 70th week. And it's a time when God is really going to be working with Israel. And what's interesting is that when the church is taken out, God is going to reveal himself in reality to Israel. And we find in Revelation chapter 7 that God is going to have 144,000 witnesses in the time of the tribulation. And those witnesses are going to come 12,000 from each tribe of the children of Israel. We're going to have 144,000 apostle Pauls running around the earth in tribulation. And uh, it's going to be a time of great revival in the earth. Israel, who, whose eyes are blinded now, will have their eyes opened at that point in time. And God is going to start working with his people again. And he's going to draw them back to himself. And they're going to have 144,000 witnesses. Among those witnesses, or I say on top of those witnesses, there are going to be two very special witnesses described in Revelation chapter 11. And they're going to be endowed with miraculous power. It says in Revelation chapter 11 that they will be able to destroy their enemies with fire. They'll be able to shut up the skies so that it won't rain. They will be able to turn water to blood. They will be able to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, they're going to be some interesting characters. They're going to resemble Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament. In fact, many Bible students believe they will actually be Elijah and Moses on the earth. So during the first half of the tribulation, 144,000 witnesses... These two witnesses with miraculous power bringing plagues and, and, and tremendous miraculous power proclaiming the reality of the gospel and there's going to be a great revival in the tribulation period. We usually think of it as a time of great judgment. It will be that. But it will also be a time of great revival that's probably unparalleled on the earth any time in the past. In fact, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 describes a great multitude which no one could count, saved out of every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And not only that, but we will find the fulfillment of Romans chapter 11, where it says that all Israel will be saved. It describes the time of the Gentiles in, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, and it says when the time of the Gentiles is up, which happens at the rapture, then all Israel will be saved. That's going to happen during the tribulation period. 
There will also be a time of great judgment. And there will be the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments that will take place in the first half of the tribulation. So meanwhile, while all this rise of government is taking place and this one world religion is taking place, while all this revival is taking place, there will be judgments on the scene. And the seals are described in Revelation chapter 6. They begin with the four horsemen. Uh, the first is a white horse representing Antichrist. He's going to come on the scene at the initial stages of the tribulation, impersonating Christ. The second is a red horse, which represents war. His peace is going to be short-lived, as man's peace always is. The third is a black horse, representing famine. It tells us there that, that food will be worth its weight in gold, that a man will have to work an entire day just to pay for one meal during the tribulation. Great famine on the earth. The fourth is a pale horse, representing death. And we're told that a fourth of the earth will die because of war and because of famine. The fifth seal shows us martyrs under the altar who are slain because of their testimony in Christ. And so it'll be a time when we'll see uh, probably unparalleled martyrdom on the earth because of the stand for Jesus Christ. And then the sixth seal tells us about an earthquake that's really going to be an earthquake in the universe. And it says it's going to, the, uh, the sun will be black, the moon will be like blood, the stars will fall from the sky, the sky will be split apart like a scroll, and I believe for a brief instant, men are going to get a view of the throne of God. Because it says at the end of Revelation chapter 6 that they're going to call out to the mountains and say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of, of, of the, the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. And they will pray to the mountains to hide them from the presence of God. And then we see the seventh, or the seventh seal in Revelation 8 and 9, and that unfolds the seven trumpets. First one, a third of the trees and green grass will be burned up. Second, a third of the sea becomes blood. The third trumpet, a third of the rivers are poisoned. The fourth trumpet, a third of the heavens are darkened. And so it's all affecting creation. A third of the grass, a third of the sea, a third of the rivers, a third of the heavens. The fifth trumpet uh, describes for us in Revelation chapter 9 these demons who are released from the bottomless pit in order to... Uh, torment men and they will be locusts with tails like scorpions and they will torment men for five months and it says that men will seek death in order to escape the pain but will not find it and then the sixth trumpet sounds at the end of chapter 9 and it describes four angels who have been bound at the Euphrates River and they are released and they will gather together a demonic cavalry of 200 million fire and brimstone breathing horsemen who I take to be demons who will consume a third of mankind. Pretty awesome situation. And that is only the midpoint of the tribulation. That's only the B game. Okay, that's just the, the tribulation. Then we're now we're ready for the great tribulation, which will come after that. Uh, some important events happen at the midpoint of the tribulation period because Revelation chapter 12 describes how Satan is thrown out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation. So he comes down here and that's when really all hell breaks loose because he's confined to this earth and, he, and the judgments are just going to increase and he's like a trapped animal. He's confined to the earth and he's just going to release his vengeance upon this earth. 
At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel. He makes a peace covenant at the beginning. At the midpoint, he's going to break that covenant with Israel. And he's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to kill the two witnesses. Described in Revelation chapter 11, their bodies are going to lie in the street and everybody's going to celebrate about it. They're going to have uh, happy dead witnesses day and exchange gifts and everybody's going to be excited. The plagues are over. These guys are gone. Uh, the Antichrist has eliminated them. And then he's going to take his seat in the temple of God in Jerusalem and he's going to display himself as being God. And that's going to set the stage for the second half of the tribulation period. What's the great tribulation like? When we talk about religion in the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to destroy the harlot. It's described that, that uh, the, the harlot rides the beast in the first half of the tribulation. She's the false, false ecumenical church, and she's going to ride the beast to success in the first half of the tribulation, and then it's described in Revelation chapter 17 that the beast is going to turn around and, and consume her, devour her and burn her up. And so the, the harlot church is done away with at the midpoint of the tribulation. And at that point, all false religion will, in essence, come out of the closet and openly become what it really is, and that is Satan worship. And, uh, of course, today Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We're told that his, his servants disguise themselves as ambassadors of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's, he's disguising everything today. But in that day, there'll be no more charade, no more pretense. It's all going to come out of the closet. It's all going to be what it really is today anyway, and that is Satan worship. In Revelation 13, 4, it says, the whole earth will worship the dragon, Satan, and worship the beast, the Antichrist. The whole earth is going to be worshiping Satan and his man during that great tribulation. You say, well, what would cause people to do that? Well, several things will stimulate that kind of worship. Uh, number one is that there will be a simulated resurrection. It tells us that the, the Antichrist is going to have a fatal wound that will be healed. And so it's going to be a simulation of Christ's resurrection. At, the, at, at some point, he's going to be apparently receive this critical wound, and he's going to have a simulated resurrection. It doesn't say he'll actually be resurrected. I'm not sure that Satan has the power to give life to anyone but it says he will have a fatal wound and it will be healed. It will be a simulated resurrection and all the world will marvel at that and it will cause them to worship him. Secondly, he'll have miraculous power. It tells us in Revelation chapter 13 that Satan will give his power and authority to the beast and so he will be the closest thing to Satan in the flesh that has ever existed on this earth. Thirdly, he's going to have a promoter guy called the false prophet. He's like the Don King of the tribulation. And he's going to promote this Antichrist. And he's going to make all the world to worship the Antichrist. That's going to be his whole, whole thing. And it says he's going to give, be given power to, to, to show signs and wonders. In fact, he's going to be able to call fire out of heaven. He's going to be able to impress people in that manner. Uh, he's going to cause the earth to make an image to the Antichrist. And after they build this image to the Antichrist, then he's going to give it breath and allow it to speak. And all the world is going to be overwhelmed by that. Now, that's, we're, we live in a technological age, and it's hard to impress people today. But he's going to impress people with this situation. So you can imagine what it's going to be like. Uh, he's going to give life. 
in essence, to this, this image. And then there's a fourth thing that stimulates worship to him, and that is death. Because all who refuse to bow down and worship him will be put to death. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, it refers to those who had been beheaded because they hadn't worshipped the beast or his image. That's a vivid word. And it may tell us what kind of death these people will die because it implies the use of something comparable to a guillotine that's going to remove people's heads. And of course, this parallels what we read back in Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar set up his big image and he had his fiery furnace there and he said, if you don't bow down, you're going to go into the fiery furnace. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing. He's going to have this image. Men will worship him. If they refuse to, they'll die. In the governmental realm, the Antichrist will have switched from a peacemaker at this point in time to a man of war. And Daniel chapter 11, verse 38 says, He will honor the God of fortresses. Daniel 7, 7 describes his kingdom as a beast with iron teeth that devours and crushes and tramples. And so by means of military strength, he is going to become a world ruler. Daniel 11.39 says he will conquer nations and then he will parcel out land for a price. He's going to take over the world and then he's going to parcel it out for a price so that there will be kings under him who will rule over certain, certain portions. Revelation 13.7 describes his government this way. It says authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He will rise and have an entire world empire, authority over everyone in the world. Um, he will have maintained control through a worldwide banking system. Uh, he will have uh, your credit card, well, if you're here, he'll have your credit card number on your wrist or on your forehead and when you go to the store they'll just run that little thing over it and credit your system and it'll all be banked. It'll be a cashless system that's set up. He'll maintain control that way. He'll be able to tax everyone that way. Uh, and anyone who refuses that number will be put to death or ostracized from the society. In the area of faith, faith in Christ will be punishable by death during the Great Tribulation. Israel will be persecuted by the Antichrist. That's why it says in Matthew 24, Jesus said when you, to Israel, he said to his, to his disciples, you stand in Israel, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. What is the abomination of desolation? It is the Antichrist sitting in the temple making himself out to be God. And he says, when you see that abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about, you in Judea better flee to the mountains. Because at the midpoint, he sets himself up as God, and he takes as his task no longer to have a covenant of peace with Israel, but now his goal is to persecute Israel. And that's going to happen during the second half of the tribulation. And we're told that God is going to miraculously protect Israel in the wilderness from the persecution of the Antichrist and of Satan. Judgments during the Great Tribulation are the bold judgments described in chapter 16. The first one is a repulsive, malignant sore on those who have the mark of the beast. It's as if God says, you want a mark on you, I'll give you a mark. And he puts this ugly, repulsive, malignant sore on people. The second is the sea will become blood and every living thing in the sea will die. The third judgment is the rivers and springs of water 
will all become blood. The fourth is that the sun will intensify in heat and it will scorch men with fierce heat. The fifth is that darkness will come over the beast's throne and his kingdom. The sixth is that the Euphrates River will dry up, making way for the kings of the east. And Satan's demons will gather together all the kings of the earth for the battle of Armageddon. And then the seventh uh, judgment, bold judgment, tells us that we will see flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake like no other there has ever been. Jerusalem will be split into parts. Babylon will be destroyed. The cities of the nations will all fall. The islands will sink. The mountains will crumble. And then if that isn't bad enough, it tells us that huge hailstones, a hundred pounds each, will fall from heaven upon men. And there's a voice that comes out of heaven and says, it's done. That's the end of the judgments. Now, the, the tribulation period will really culminate with the battle of Armageddon. And we're really almost out of time. So let me just give you a, a capsule form of, of what the uh, battle of Armageddon will be like. Uh, I feel a little like Norman Schwarzkopf here. Uh, explaining this to you. Um, the tribulation is going to be, begin with a peace covenant with Israel. And uh, the Antichrist is going to be from the area around the Mediterranean Sea, the revived Roman Empire. He's going to make a, a covenant with Israel, give them back their land, settle all of that. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, if we had time, we would read a, a Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 45. Important passage. And there it describes for us how that the king of the south is going to come against the Antichrist. And uh, he will be conquered. And the king of the north is going to come against the Antichrist. Now, when you, tie, you have to tie several scriptures together, but Daniel chapter 11 talks about the king of the south and the king of the north. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 describes the king of the north and how he comes down against Israel. Uh, what's going to happen is that he's going to have this peace covenant with Israel, and Israel's going to be living in peace. Ezekiel chapter 38 says they'll be living in unwalled cities. Everything will be going great in Israel. And the king of the north is going to look down and see this opportunity and say, I think I'll just take this country. It's a little country. They, they think they're in peace. I'll just come down and take them and take their spoils. Now, the king of the south is Egypt and northern Africa. The king of the north, uh, most Bible students believe is Russia. Uh, there's some arguments for that. Uh, actually, in some place in Scripture, for instance, Isaiah chapter 30, he's called the Assyrian. And if you, if you look you know, on an old map where Assyria was, Assyria kind of lay right in through here. Can you see that? It would include modern-day Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, Lebanon, uh, it may even, in fact, it could e easily be that the king of the north could actually be from Iraq or Iran. Uh, because from Israel's perspective, that's, that's north. Because you can't, you can't come uh, from the east straight across because there's desert there. Everybody follows that fertile valley. And they go up and then they come down. So uh, it could be that the king of the north will come from there. 
At any rate, when the king of the north comes, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 describes how he'll be destroyed. And he won't even be destroyed by the Antichrist. He's going to be destroyed by God. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 38, he'll be destroyed by fire and brimstone. Now that's interesting. Because I believe that this battle is going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. When the king of the north is destroyed. And the sixth trumpet judgment is going to be the 200 million horsemen army that is going to be putting out fire and brimstone and kill a third of mankind. Uh, so it very may, well may tie together that that's the point of time when, in fact, the king of the north is, is put away. He's going to be killed before the final battle of Armageddon. Uh, read Joel 2 and 3 and you'll see the progression chronologically. The king of the north is put away, then the tribulation or the, the Battle of Armageddon comes. You'll see that chronology in, in Joel 2 and 3. Uh, at any rate, uh, he will be destroyed. Uh, he will also go around and conquer many other countries, it says in Daniel chapter 11. He'll build his world empire. And then, when we get to the close of the tribulation period, Daniel chapter 11 verse 44 says that he will hear rumors from the east. Now, we're not told what those rumors are. But those rumors may well be that the Euphrates River has dried up. Uh, he's over here in his land, he's building his empire, and now he hears the rumor that the Euphrates River has dried up. And across the Euphrates River are going to come the, the kings from the east, China, Japan, coming across. And they will set up to have their battle, apparently. That's the one group of kings that he hasn't really affected. They will come across the Euphrates River, prepare for battle, they'll come to the valley of Megiddo in northern Israel. And when they get there, Matthew chapter 24 tells us that they will see the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. And the Lord Jesus will prepare to come back. And when they're prepared to battle each other, they're going to see him coming out of heaven and they're going to turn and make war against him and they will be destroyed. And that will be, that's described in Revelation chapter 19. That's going to be the final, the coming of Christ when he puts away this kingdom for good. Now, I had much more to say, but we're, we're out of time. Uh, let me just say this. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branches become tender and it puts forth its leaves, then you know that summer is near. And he said, when you see all these things coming to pass, then you know that he is near right at the door. The things that we see here are not going to happen until the tribulation period. But we can see many of these things formulating in our society today. And when we see that, we recognize that the branches are tender and the leaves are starting to come out. And we need to recognize that Jesus is at the door. Uh, Israel is in the land. They weren't even a nation until 1948. They're in the land now. We're prepared for the tribulation period. The, the branches are tender. Our world is waiting for somebody to step forward today and resolve the Israeli-Arab problem. The branches are tender. We've got satellite TV, so the whole world can witness all these events instantly. The branches are tender. We've got the capability for a worldwide banking system already ready. It's, it's available, but the technology is there. The branches are tender. The Europe